Now let's turn around and shake hands and fellowship one with another. Welcome our visitors. Let our ushers come forward to receive our offering this morning and 
you are visiting with us today. We want to say it's a joy to have you with us. And if you received a packet a moment ago, there's a guest card on the inside. If you would take just a moment and fill that out and drop an offering plate, we'd appreciate it so much. As I said a while ago, we want to get to know you, and we want you to get to know us, and we'll be getting you some information about the church. And so if you'll take a moment and fill that card out, we'd appreciate it so much. I want you to add a couple of names to your prayer list. Check your bulletin each week for those in the hospital. And but the couple we want to add to the uh, prayer list this morning, Roy Phelps, uh, his stepmother passed away. The funeral is tomorrow. And South Pittsburgh, so I want to remember Roy and all the family. And then uh, Tom was sharing with Melvin Derryberry. is a good friend of us, and uh, he is at Erlanger Hospital. If you'll add his name to the list, we'd appreciate it so much. And then tonight, or this afternoon, I need some of the ladies that will help me. Uh, of course, many of you know on Sunday afternoons we are providing what we call conversational English classes uh, for the number of Spanish that is in this area. I saw an article in the uh, paper here a couple of weeks ago. There's approximately 10,000 uh, Spanish in this area, and there's, or in, in the Hamden County, and there's a large number of them right here in our neighborhood. And uh, we, of course, here at the church, missions is a very important part of what we do. And last year, missions, we gave 120 some thousand dollars to missions, and uh, we trust that we'll be able to do more even this year. But uh, the mission field is being brought to us in one sense, and we appreciate those from our church like Bill and Cindy and Frankie and Paula and uh, um, the Ramses, uh, those that are serving in Costa Rica, working with the Spanish. But God's brought them right here at the foot of, of in our door. And so what we want to do is try to reach as many of them as we can and get the gospel out. And uh, so many of them, they don't speak English at all. So we are providing the uh, conversational English classes on Sunday afternoon where they can uh, uh, maybe learn a little bit of English. And we trust and pray that this will open the door for us to have a real ministry with them. But the, tonight in the evening service, while we're in here, we're also, we have a guest coming in who's going to be having a service with them. We're going to be having a Spanish service over in the building next door. That'll be at 7 o'clock tonight. And what we want to do and need uh, several of you ladies to do is maybe fix some sandwiches and uh, some desserts or something like that and bring those by as you come into church tonight so that we can... Uh, maybe have a little meal for them. We had one service for them a few weeks ago, and we had 75 in that service. And so uh, we're going to have another service tonight, and we have a Spanish pastor that's going to be speaking to them. So uh, we want to let them know that we love them, and uh, uh, we want to pray for them. But how many ladies can just fix me up some sandwiches, bologna and cheese and maters and all that kind of stuff like that? And bring those by as you come to even service. Will you ladies, if you'll help me with that, stick your hands up there. Will you do that? There's one, two. We need a bunch of them. And all right, great. I appreciate all of you doing this. If you'll just fix us up a plate of them and bring them by. Take them by the Family Life Center this afternoon. Any desserts, chips, sandwiches, anything like that, I would certainly appreciate it. And uh, we'll have the service. And also, it's just one way that we express to them that we love you and that you are very, very important to us. So thank you for everybody that will do that for me this afternoon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you now for your blessings. And we ask you, Lord, to continue to move and to bless in the service. And we ask you, Lord, that you would use us here at Temple Baptist to reach the many that you are bringing to our footstep. And use us, Lord, to get the gospel out and that many will be saved. Pray that you'll bless the service tonight and that many will come to know the Lord Jesus. Now, bless in this service, bless the offering and the giving of the people of God. In Jesus' name, 
Amen.
There will be no dying, no more trouble or strife. We will live all through the ages through that beautiful light. When some glad tomorrow with the saints thou stand, I'll put on a crown and walk around all over God's promised land. Oh, glory, glory. what a wonderful day.
we have anything to rejoice in as Christians this morning? I don't know if you've ever been to where I've been, but I've questioned the Lord on some things. And I've asked Him why on some things. But you know, Isaiah says His thoughts are not our thoughts. And His ways are not our ways. And down the road, I knew that it was for my good and for His glory. And we make a lot of mistakes in this world, but let me tell you one thing we can rejoice in. God makes no mistakes. Listen to the words of this song, O Rejoice in the Lord. God never moves without purpose or plan when trying His servant and molding a man give thanks to the lord though your testing seems long in darkness he giveth a song Rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistakes. He knoweth the end of each path that I take. For when I am tried and pure. shall come forth as gold. I could not see through the shadows ahead, so I looked at the cross of my Savior instead, and I bow to the will of the Master that day. Then peace came, and tears fled away. And now I can see that testing comes from above. God strengthens his children and purges in love. My father knows best and he trusts in his care through purging more fruit i will bear oh rejoice in the lord he makes no mistakes he
Take your Bible and turn to the book of Job chapter 3, if you would, this morning. Job chapter 3. And while you're finding your place, let me just share with you and remind you of some future things that are about to happen. We have what we call three Super Sundays that are coming up here over the next couple of months. The first one will be March the 25th. That is Revival Sunday. Now, what we're going to be doing on these three Super Sundays, uh, we're really going to put forth an effort and uh, to get our family and friends and loved ones in church. And so I want you to mark your calendar, March the 25th, that's Sunday, and then that's Revival Sunday. And, of course, Revival Brother Hurt goes through Wednesday night of that week. But I want you to start today working to get friends and family here that particular day. We want our Sunday school. Set, we're going to be setting goals for Sunday school. be meeting with teachers next Sunday night about that. But uh, we want to just have a large number here that day. But the purpose is to get our friends and our family and our loved ones here. So I want you to start working today. When you go home, start calling everybody you can. Everywhere you go, invite folks and tell them about our Super Sunday, Revival Sunday, March the 25th. The next one will be Easter Resurrection Sunday. Have a lot of great things planned that day. Special service that Sunday morning. Then that Sunday night, a very special service with Squire Parsons will be back with us again. Been a few years since he's been with us, but he'll be with us again on Sunday night, Easter Sunday. So it's going to be a great day. And then Mother's Day is always a special day, and we'll say more about that. But I want you to start work. Everybody, everybody trying to have at least one visitor with them on Revival Sunday. How many of you will help me do that? Will you do that? All right, great. Let's stand as we honor the reading of his word. And by the way, Rick, see me after service. I happen to think about something we talked about revival. Uh, but see me. I'm amazed. So many times I come to church on Sunday morning and, and I'm amazed as I see the hand of God and the direction of God as it moves in a service and, of course, I never call Brother Rick and say, now, this is what I'm going to be preaching on. I want you to do this or do that. And I never ask the special singers. Once in a while, I may say to someone, I want you to do this song. But time and time again, I've come to a service and somebody would get up and sing a song that just you knew that this was what the Lord was doing, this is what the Lord was saying. And the song that it was just sung, I couldn't have picked a better song for what I want to share with you this morning. I want to share with you this thought. I want to ask you a question, and then I'm going to try to answer it today. But have you ever asked why? Have you ever asked why? Have ever, has anything ever happened in your life that you said, Lord, why? I want you to look at Job 3 and verse 23. This is a verse of Scripture that uh, has been in my heart for years. I have never preached on it. But I want to share with you this morning this one verse, and we'll consider it in its context today. But look at one verse, Job 3, verse 23. I want you to notice what Job says. Listen to it carefully. Job said, Why is light given to a man whose way is hid, and whom God hath hedged in? Now bear in mind, this is Job speaking. And Job says, why is light given to a man whose way is hid and whom God hath hedged in? Have you ever asked why? Thank you. you may be seated. And during this morning, we're going to look at the Word of God and share with you a few things from this verse and its context. 
Our Father, this morning as we gather here, we are mindful, Lord, that you are God. And we're mindful, Lord, not only that you are God, but the kind of God that you are. You're a God that never makes a mistake. And we're grateful for that, and we are assured of that in your word. Father, this morning we ask you now that you might speak to us. I believe in my heart, Lord, that this is what you want for this hour. This is what you want for this moment. And you've already sealed that in this service. And so I know that you want to say something to all of us that is gathered here today. And so, Father, I come, one, asking that the Spirit of God crucify this flesh, that I in no way be a hindrance to what you would want to say, but I would be freshly submitted to you that you might speak and minister to our hearts this morning. So bless the Word of God now. Give us spiritual enlightenment to what we look at, and we'll thank you and we'll praise you for it is in Jesus' name we pray and ask these things. Amen. This week as I thought about this particular verse of Scripture and put all of my books on Job and looked in all of my books for anything that anybody had to say about this particular verse and this particular chapter, I found that in just about all of them, and all of the commentaries and all the different writers, all of them spoke of how depressing Job chapter 3 is. One of them referred to it as the most miserable chapter in the Bible. And I would say to you this morning that Job chapter 3 is a very depressing chapter. It is a chapter in which we look into the heart of a man and listen to the words of a man that is going through a very difficult and very distra extremely distressing time in his life. It is the story of Job. And it is one chapter in his story of adversity. It is one chapter in his story of affliction. When I think about Job chapter 3, I like to think of it as Job's why chapter. For as you read the chapter as a whole, you'll find that five times Job asked the question why. For example, you notice in verse 11, twice he asked why. He said in verse 11, why died I not from the womb? He also said in verse 11, why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? You notice down in verse 12, again twice in verse 12, he asked why. He said, why did the knees prevent me? And second of all, and why the breast that I should suck? And then down in verse 23 in our text verse, once again, he asked why. He said, why is light given to a man whose way is hid and whom God hath hedged in? Job asked five times in this chapter, why? Now, if you looked at Job chapter 1 and Job chapter 2, you would see the calamity of Job. But when you look at Job chapter 3, you see the confusion of Job. He is a man that is suffering on the outside, and that suffering is very obvious. But when we come to chapter 3, we find that he is a man not only suffering on the outside, he is a man that is struggling on the inside. Job, a godly man, a man that feared God, and a man that passionately hated evil. We find him struggling with the why of his adversity and the why of his affliction. I would remind you at the very beginning this morning that Job is no different than each of us. We all at one time or another have asked the question why. And almost all of us, if not all of us, at some time or another we have asked ourselves or we have asked the question, why did this happen? 
Or what is the reason behind this in my life? There are times when we ask the question when we see things happen in other people's life. In fact, there are times when it is hard not to ask why. I think about a book that I read a number of years ago during a dark time in my life, a book that I have cherished throughout the years, a book written by Herbert Lockyer entitled Dark Threads That the Weaver Needs. And the first chapter in the book, Dark Threads the Weaver Needs, is entitled I Sat Where They Sat. In that chapter, Dr. Lockyer opens a window to his heart and he reveals somewhat and shares a little bit of a personal trial that was in his life. And he writes these words and listen. He said, My dear wife and I have been married for more than 66 years. But through the last seven or so years, she has been practically dead to the world. Mentally afflicted, my lifelong partner has no consciousness of the past or present is unable to recognize her own dear loved ones, is speechless and almost totally blind and deaf, is incontinent, is bedridden, and has to be fed like a baby with baby food only. Apart from the daily visit of a nurse who washes and protects her sores, the care of my helpless one has been under my responsibility. And then he says, Often as I have looked upon her afflicted, helpless form, I have asked, Oh my God, why? There's a footnote to that chapter that tells of how two days after writing those lines that Miss Lockyer went home to be with the Lord. But it may be there's someone today in a similar situation or has been in a similar situation where you ask the question, why? Oh my God, why? I do not feel that Dr. Lockyer was alone in asking why. I do not feel that he was all by himself. For again, almost all of us, if not all of us, we have asked the question why. Job asked the question why. I want you to look at the chapter, and I want to give you three things. The first one will give you a little background to the chapter. The second point will give you the setting of the chapter, but then all of it leads to the third and the final point, which is the heart of the message, and that is Job asking why. Let me point out these three things. The first one is this. I want you to think with me for a moment about the magnitude of Job's trial, the magnitude of Job's trial. Notice how chapter 3 begins. We begin chapter 3 by reading these words. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed his day. Underscore the two words, after this. For when I read those two words, after this, I ask the question, after what? He opens his mouth and he speaks in verse 1, but only after something has happened in his life, only after certain things have occurred. What has occurred? Let me just remind you and let me summarize all the events of chapter 1 and chapter 2 under these three thoughts. The first thing that I think of when I think about after this or what had occurred in Job's life, I see that his finances are depleted. His finances are depleted. Job, the book of Job begins with giving us a little information about Job. And when we learn about Job, we find that he was a very wealthy man. Job 1 verse 3 speaks of his substance. And it speaks of how that he was one of the greatest men of the East. And that verse alone describes some of the material possessions and the holdings that Job had. Job was a very wealthy man. Job was a man of much possessions and great riches, but yet 
As you read the book of Job, you find that in a matter of hours, maybe minutes, Job lost it all. The story is told in chapter 1 of the messengers that came to Job. And one messenger comes to Job telling of how the Sabaeans have come and stolen his herds and have killed his servants. And while he's speaking, a second messenger comes running up and begins to tell Job how fire has come down from heaven and destroyed his flocks and even more of his servants. And even while the second messenger speaks, a third one arrives telling him that the Chaldeans have stolen his camels and even more of his servants have been slain. You see, in a matter of hours, practically all of Job's earthly possessions are destroyed. In a matter of minutes, his portfolio is decimated. And Job finds himself being one of the wealthiest men in the country and in the world. Suddenly, he is bankrupt and all of it occurring in just a matter of hours, maybe even minutes. His finances are depleted, but that is not all. It gets worse. For his finances are not only depleted, but you find that his family is dead. After this, Job opened his mouth. After what? His family is dead. Job 1 verse 2 gives us a little information about his family. There we learn that Job had seven sons and three daughters. God blessed Job with a large family, three, three girls and seven boys. And it's very obvious in Job 1 that he loved his children very deeply. Job 1 in verse 5 tells about how every day when Job would get up in the morning, Job would take his boys and his girls to God in prayer. And every day, Job would offer a sacrifice for every one of his children. He would offer a burnt offering for boy number one. He would offer a burnt offering for boy number two and so on. He would offer a sacrifice for every one of them. And the Bible said he did this continually. Not a day went by that Job didn't pray for his children. It would appear that his children was his pride and joy. But his financial ruin was to turn much darker when the fourth messenger came with the news that all of his children had been over one of the brothers' house, one of these boys, and they'd all been over there eating together, and suddenly a whirlwind or a tornado, as we might say, has destroyed the house, and all ten of his children has perished. Can you imagine? In a matter of moments, Job has learned that he's lost everything. In a matter of moments, Job has learned that he is now a bankrupt man. And then to top it all off, he has now learned that his family has perished, that all of his children are dead. There is his finances that are depleted and his family that is dead, but it doesn't even stop there. You find in Job 2 verse 7 that his flesh was diseased. For you see, the trials and troubles of Job were not restricted to that which he owned and not restricted to those that he loved. But Job himself would be, would be struck with the disease. It would leave him covered in sores, as Job 2, 7 said, from the sole of his foot to the crown of his head or unto his crown. It would be as you and myself, myself saying that he was covered from so with sores from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. As John Phillips states, he was crippled with bankruptcy, crushed with bereavement, and covered by boils. That is the magnitude of Job's trial. Can you imagine it? In a matter of moments, he's now lost everything. In a matter of moments, he's lost every one of his children. 
In a matter of days, Job himself is a diseased man with sores covering his body. It's almost beyond human comprehension. And the magnitude of Job's trial is mind-boggling. I have known those through the years that went through trials that were dark and deep. And I have known those through the years that the trials that accumulated were very dark and very deep, but I have never in my lifetime, and I don't believe anybody here has ever known anybody that went through trials of the magnitude of the trials that Job went through. That's the magnitude of his trials. But look in chapter 3, and second of all, to the misery of his trials. You can only begin to imagine what Job is feeling. When you think about the magnitude of his trial, you can only begin to imagine the misery that he's going through. It's when you come to chapter 3 that you begin to get an idea of the depths of Job's misery. The closing verse of chapter 2 states that his grief was very great. The word very that is used there is a word that was often added to words as an intensive or a superlative. It would be like saying that his grief was very, very, very great. The word is often translated in the Bible exceeding or exceedingly. The Bible is saying that Job's grief was exceedingly great. That the grief and the misery of his trial, he was very, 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 very great. Chapter 2, you find Job sitting there. For seven days, Job has said nothing. For seven days, Job has sat in silence. But now, in chapter 3, he opens his mouth. And after everything that has happened, we now hear from Job. And when we hear what Job has to say, we learn something about the depths of his grief and the misery that he was going through. Look at it. You see, for one thing, the misery of his trial, you see that Job deplored the announcement of his birth. Job deplored the announcement of his birth. For notice what he said, what he said in verse 1. That when he opened his mouth, what did he do? Job 1 said, or Job 3, 1 said that he cursed his day. It literally means that he considered vile the day that he was born. Cursed, to trivialize, to look at it as a fact. Look in verse 3 what he said. He said, let the day perish wherein I was born. And the night in which it was said, there is a man child conceived. You know what Job was saying in verse 3? What he did in verse 1? He was saying that he regretted the day that he was born. In fact, in one of Job's whys in this chapter, he asked in verse 11, Why died I not from the womb? Job said, Why could I not have been a miscarriage? Why could not my mother have miscarried me? He said in verse 11, Or why did I not give up the ghost when I came out of the belly? If I couldn't have been a miscarriage, why could I not have been stillborn? Job and all that he's going through, he says, Oh, I wish I had never been born. Cursed be the day that anybody said, Job, you've got a boy. Or said to him, he said to his dad, You've got a boy. You've heard someone say, I wish I'd never been born. That's exactly what Job is saying. Why? Because Job is thinking that if I had never been born, I would never be going through what I'm going through. If I had died in my mother's womb, I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be alive, and thus I wouldn't be going through and experiencing what I'm experiencing. If I had died a stillborn, then I would not be going through what I'm going through. How deep is his misery? He deplores the announcement of his birth. But that's not all. 
You notice in verse 5 that he not only deplores the announcement of his birth, but he even desires the arrival of his death. He not only wishes that he never had never been born, but his grief is so great that he wishes he could die. Verse 5. Let darkness and the shadow of death stain it. Let a cloud dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Oh, what is he talking about? He's talking about the day of his birth or uh, his life itself. He said, let it be stained with death. As for the night, let darkness seize upon it. May I die suddenly. Let it not be joined in the days of the year. Not let, don't let my life be extended. Let it not come into the number of the months. Don't let my life be prolonged. You see, he not only deplores the fact and regrets that he's ever been born, but Job says, I wish I could die. Job says, I hope my days are not going to be long. He said, I hope that my hours are numbered and short. Why? Because Job knows if he was dead that he wouldn't be going through what he's going through. He wouldn't be experiencing what he was going through. He'd be free from the problems and free from the anguish and the misery that is associated with those problems. You see, when you hear what Job says, you readily recognize that this is a man that is hurting deeply. You might say that the heart of Job has been deeply lacerated. He was a man with an internal injuries that no surgeon could heal. Here is a man, when you look at you see raw, naked agony. A man that wishes I had never been born. I wish I could die. He's in such misery and such anguish. I think of Martha Snell Nicholson's poem entitled Guest and the first half of it. She writes, pain knocked upon my door and said that she had come to stay. And though I would not welcome her but bade her go away, she entered in and like my own shade, she followed after me. And from her stabbing, stinging sword, no moment was I free. I think of Job. Pain didn't even give him the common courtesy of knocking. Campaign didn't even give him the common courtesy of introducing itself. It suddenly burst through Job's door without warning and ignored his pleas and ran roughshod over his heart. There's a magnitude of his trials and the misery of his trials, a man in such misery that he regrets that he was ever born and wishes that he could die. But there's a third and a final thing in the story, and this is what I want you to get this morning. You not only see the magnitude of Job's trial, and the misery of Job's trial. But there is the mystery of Job's trial. Now, when you look at Job's trial from his perspective, are you with me this morning? Are you following me? When you look at Job's trial from his perspective, we see that everything he is going through is shrouded in mystery. Now, you and I have the advantage of seeing things from a distance. We know what chapter 1, chapter 2 says. We know about the conversation there. We've read it. We've eavesdropped. We know what went on there. And so we have the advantage of looking at it from a distance and we know what is going on in Job's life and we know why it is going on in Job's life. But Job knew nothing about that conversation. Job didn't know anything about what went on between God and Satan in chapter 1 and 2. Job didn't know about it. He had no idea what was going on. And so when you come to what is happening in his life, Job doesn't understand why. Everything that is happening is shrouded in mystery. And you find him asking repeatedly in chapter 3, why? He doesn't understand. He doesn't know why. So he says, why? 
Now, when I think about Job asking why, it leads me to these two final thoughts. And this is what I want to dwell on. The first thing I think of when I hear Job asking why, I think of the great perplexity of life. I think of that great perplexity of life. Look at our text again, Job 3, 23. Look at it again. This is what Job says or asks. Why is light given to a man whose way is hid and whom God hath hedged in? You know what Job is doing in verse 23? He's asking why these things are happening in his life. Job looks around and he doesn't know of one reason why this ought to be happening in his life. He, his suffering seems to be without a justifiable cause. Job examines his heart. Job looks at his life, and he doesn't find one thing there that might be the reason for why he's going through what he's going through. And so Job says, why? Now notice in verse 23 how he describes the things going on in his life. He speaks of his way as being hid. Underscore the word hid for a moment. The word hid speaks of that which is concealed. It speaks of that which has been covered up, hidden from view, or that which is secret. Job says, my way has been concealed. It's like somebody has covered up my way, that my way, there's such a secret and a mystery about it. What did he mean by his way? The word way literally describes a road. And as used by Job, it would be descriptive of a course that someone has taken. What Job is saying is in Job 3.23, he said, I don't understand. I don't understand why this sudden change of direction in my life. I don't understand this sudden course that I have found myself Taking. I don't understand why all of a sudden I'm going down this road. Here was the road that was on, but now all of a sudden this is my course and this is my direction. Why am I going this way? Job is saying, I don't understand why this is happening. Verse 23 even questions God and all that is going on, and he speaks of God as having hedged him in. The word hedge there speaks of offense. Some kind of hedge or a fence put around someone to hide them in or to shut them in. Job feels like as he's through all that he's going through, Job feels like he has been shut in. Job feels like he's been fenced in. It's like he's saying, I don't understand why these things are happening in my life. I don't understand why suddenly I am, my life is taking this course. I don't understand that and furthermore, I can't do anything about what's going on in my life. I feel like I'm shut in, fenced in. I don't understand what's happening, but what's worse, I can't do anything about what is happening in my life. You notice there in the text that the words, why is light given, that it's in italics, meaning that it was added there by the translators to help you to understand the verse. Most believe that Job is talking about life rather than light. For that's what he's been talking about in Job 3. He's been talking about the beginning of life. He's been talking about the end of life. So when Job says, why is light given really? Job is talking about life. And Job acknowledges the fact that he has been given life. But he doesn't understand why his life is going this direction. He has been given life, but he doesn't understand why. His life has taken this course all of a sudden. He has been given life, but he doesn't understand why he can't do something about what he is going through. So what does he do? He says, why? God, why is my life 
going this way? Why is my life suddenly reversed itself? Lord, why is it that I can't do anything about what I'm going through? He asked that question, which is the great perplexity of life. Why? I want you to listen to me this morning. When I think about why things happen in our life, and we've all asked why, the reason and the explanation of why certain things happen in our life, that is the great question of life. That is the great perplexity of life. It is the one thing that we might say that stumps us. It's the one thing that we just have trouble with. Why? Why me? Why her? Why him? Why this? Why that? Why now? It's that perplexity, that great question of life. It's a February the 4th, February the 15th in 1947. An Avianca airline flight bound for Quito, Ecuador crashed into the 14,000 foot high towering peak of El Tablazo. And then it dropped a flaming mass of metal into a ravine far below. None of the passengers on that DC-4 ever knew what happened. All of them died instantly. One of the passengers was a man, a young man by the name of Glenn Chambers from New York. And he was on his way to begin a ministry with the voice of the Andes. Before Glenn left the Miami airport earlier that day, he had hurriedly wrote a note to his mom on a piece of paper that he had picked up off the floor of the terminal. And he picked that paper up, and that piece of paper had once been an advertisement with the single word, why, across the center. And between the mailing and the delivery of that note, Glenn Chambers was killed. And when that letter arrived, there staring up at his mom was the haunting question, why? I don't think there is a question so tormenting as why. It is the question that is asked by, it is the question that is asked by uh, the wife who learns of her husband's tragic death. It is the question that is asked by the parent who hears that dreaded diagnosis, it's leukemia or spinal meningitis. It is that question that is asked by a young mother with precious little children who has just learned that she has terminal cancer. It's a question that is asked by the struggling father who has children to rear and he loses his job on Friday. It is a question that is asked by children who lose a parent in an accident or lose a parent to some disease. It is the question that is asked by a close friend of one who commits suicide. It is that one great perplexity in life. Why? Why him? Why her? Why me? Why this? Why that? Why now? If there's been one question that I've been asked down through the years as a pastor, one question that I've been asked the most, it would have to be the question, why? I've been asked that question two or three times already this week. And someone would say to me, but Brother Ken, why? Why? And if there was a question that I could, that I wish that I had an answer to for every time that it was asked, it would be that one question. But time and time again, I've had to look him in the eyes and say to someone that was wondering, and all I could say was, I don't know. You see, the reason why things happen 
is that great perplexed in life. Why? We just don't know sometimes. Job's way was hidden and concealed. He didn't know why he was going through all that he was going through. And you know what I find it interesting? As I read the book of Job, I don't find anywhere in Job that God ever explained to him what he went through. Why? You, we know the end of the book, and you go to the end of the book of Job, and you read about it, and God blessed Job, uh, blessed, blessed Job, and he doubled all that he had lost and gave him back more than he ever had. But you don't read anywhere where God ever explained to Job why he went through what he went through. I think Job knows now. I'm sure somewhere, somewhere somebody showed him a Bible and said, Job, did you ever read this? And Job said, well, that's what was going on. I can imagine that. I'm sure he found out in heaven one day, but during his life, Job at this time in Job 3, he has no idea what is happening, and it would seem that in his lifetime he never had an understanding of what happened, only till he got home. Simple truth is we don't always know why, and the simple truth is we may never know why in this life. Why it happens, we don't, may not know, and we may never know why it happened. But I want you to get this. If I would call the question why the great perplexity of life, then when I want you to understand something about the great promise for life, I want you to get this. When you, if you have questions, I'm, are you listening to me? How many of you got your Bibles this morning? Did you hold them up? If you got questions, right here's the place to look for answers. Right here's the place. Washington's not the place to look for answers. And all the other places, not the place to look for answers. Right here's the place to look for answers to the questions of life. And when you look in the Bible and you search the Word of God as to why things happen, I find there are times that the Bible gives us ideals. And the Bible helps us to understand that sometimes things happen for certain reasons. For example... I find as I study the Bible and read the Word of God that I find that sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes trials are God's way of molding us and shaping us into what He wants us to be. I think about a blacksmith I read about by the name of John who had been saved from a terrible life of sin. And one day this town businessman stopped by to check on a spring that John was making for his wagon. And this businessman had, not, had observed the change in John from a local troublemaker to a regular church attender. And as he stood there, he said to him, he said, John, it seems to me that you've had nothing but trouble since you started going to that church over there. I thought, thought when you started going to church and thinking about that God you talk about all the time, you'd have things easy. John, why is it that God lets you have so many troubles and trials? Oh, John looked up from a piece of steel he'd been pounding, and he said, and said, you see this piece of steel? Before I can use it, I have to heat it red hot in the fire. And then I push it in the cold water where it sputters and cools. And if I can find it can take a temper, I'll heat it up red hot again. And then I hammer and bend it and shape it, and after a while, this piece of steel will be tempered just right to be a spring for your wagon. Then John said, the way I see it, God saved me for more reason than just to go to heaven. I'll get that for sure. But just like this steel, God needs to temper me so I can work for him. So he lets me have tests, trials, and troubles. I think of Dale Martin Stone's great poem, Watch God's Methods. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, and when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all of his heart 
to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall be amazed. Watch his methods, watch his ways. How he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects. How he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him. You see, sometimes the trials that we go through is God's way of molding us and shaping us into what he wants and into someone that he could use. I find as I read the Bible that sometimes our trials are God's way of getting our attention. The great British preacher, preacher Alexander McLaren said that every affliction comes with a message from the heart of God. It may be what you're going through is something that maybe God is wanting to talk to you. Trials are often the way that we learn about God. As Watchman Nee said, we seldom learn anything new about God except through adversity. Well, I find in trials that it's way of learning about God. It's in those darkest valleys that I learned that He is sufficient. I would never have a need, as Andrew, 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 Andrew Crouch wrote in his song. I would never have never had a problem. How would I know that He could solve them? I have never had a need. How will I know that he could supply them? I find that trials are often God's way of maturing us and God's way of perfecting us and God's way of conforming us to the image of Jesus Christ. I ran across a book a number of years ago by Paul E. Billheimer entitled Adventure in Adversity. Can you imagine a title, Adventure in Adversity? But it describes why God sometimes puts us through trials. Listen carefully to what he said. God is not satisfied merely with our being saved. He is working toward maturity and holiness and the progressive removal of the effects of the fall. And all the fall's residue must be considered as corruption because anything less than absolute purity, the purity we'll receive in glorification, must be classified as corruption. All the soulish emotions, the animus and ferment of the flesh, all the life of nature and of self, all that belongs to the fallen disposition, such as impatience and jealousy and resentment and unforgiveness and pride and egoism and uh, spiritual dullness and insensibility in any form or degree, conscious or unconscious. All of this God purposes to refine from our life and if necessary by the discipline of affliction. And I agree. It may be that our trials sometimes are God's way of molding us. It may be it's God's way of speaking to us. It may be God's way of just purifying our life. You see, as you read the Bible, you find that God has many reasons for adversity and many reasons for affliction and many reasons for trials in our life. God's Word explains some of the reasons, but the why is not always answered. There are, we, it may be that what we go through, it may be one of the purposes that I have just mentioned. But even in that moment, we're going through them and the things that are happening, we still don't know why. We don't know if God is just trying to work in my life, if He's trying to say something to me, or if He's molding me or purifying me. We just, we just don't know why. There's that uncertainty about it, and there's that which remains shrouded in mystery. Even though we know that God does these things, there is still the bottom line, we don't know why. But I want you to listen to me this morning. Even though the why is a mystery, here is the great promise that even though we may not know the reason, there 
is a reason. Are you listening to me? We may not know the reason, but the great promise of life is this. There is a reason. I may not know what I'm going through. I may not know what you're going through. And I may not know why you're going through it. And I may not know why I'm going through it. I look back through the years and I can understand today why certain things happen. But I look back at certain things. To this point, I still don't know why. And I may never know why. I may not ever know even in heaven why. But this one thing I do know. Nothing touches the life of the child of God that does not have a reason. That's the promise. That's the promise you can live by. What did Paul say in Romans 8, 28? For we know that all things work together for the good of them that love God and are called according to His purpose. There's a reason. Now that's the great promise. I don't know the answer to your questions. And we may not know why. We may not know why you have cancer. We may not know why you lost this loved one. We may not know why you're going through this. But I do know this. I may not know the why, but there is a reason for everything that happens. You believe that? I mentioned Glenn Chambers a moment ago. He picked a piece of paper and scribbled a note to his mom. You know what that note was? I'm going to put it on the screen. Look at it. He jotted these words down and sent it to his mom, and he said, God is too kind to do anything cruel, and he's too wise to make a mistake, and he's too deep to explain himself. <laughs> I may not know why, but here's the assurance and the strength that I find that no matter what happens, there is a reason. There is a reason. There is a reason. I may not always be able to trace him, but there'll never be a moment that I can't trust him. There is a reason. And one day God will unveil the reason why. I think of chapter 3. Chapter 3 is a moment in Job's life when emotions flow forth as a torrent. And I'm sure that some of the things Job said in chapter 3 he later regretted saying. Job's no different from me, and Job's no different from you. He is a human being like each one of us and every one of us at crisis times in our life and at moments of fear and crisis and trauma. We've all said things and done things that we later regretted saying and doing, haven't we? Job was no different. It was that moment that all of a sudden, seven days he hadn't said anything, all of a sudden he just, it's like a breaking point and they just, Job's emotions come flowing out and he says some things that, Again, I'm sure he regretted it. But I want to say this more. Don't judge Job by what he said in chapter 3. Don't judge Job by how he acted in chapter... Don't judge Job. He's a man. You say, oh, he should, he's a spiritual giant. He should have knew better. He should have known better. No, 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 no. Uh, you may find yourself somewhere like that one day. So don't judge Job by chapter 3. I want you to judge Job by chapter 13. Look at Job 13, verse 15. Here it is on the screen. What did Job say a little bit later? Job kind of gets his bearings. Once that moment of emotions come out and he has that moment that he struggles in his heart, and then as his heart begins to settle down and his time begins to pass, this is what Job said, Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Listen to me. There may be an answer forthcoming to your asking why. In time, you may know the reason why. Then again, you may never know the why. But I'll say to you this morning, regardless, whether you ever know or if you do know, what the reason is, you can always trust God, for there is a reason.
Dale, would you come back and sing that again? There is a reason. You remember that. He's going to sing this song. And there may be some of you this morning going through things in your life, struggling with this and struggling with that. And I wish this morning I could have got up here and said, I just want you to know, I know what you're going through, and I'm going to tell you why you're going through it. I wish I could tell you that, but I can't tell you that. But I can tell you this. I can tell you there is a reason. There is a reason. There's a reason for any, anything that happens in our life. My times are in his hand. He is God. And again, I may not know why, but all I can do and what I must do is trust God knowing that there is a reason. Maybe what you need to do this morning, there may be someone, first of all, in this building today that's never been saved. I'm going to tell you something. If you've never been saved, you are missing the greatest relationship you can ever have in life. Isn't it wonderful to have a God that will be with you in every storm and every trial? Isn't it wonderful to be able to say that God is my Father and no matter what I'm going through, I can trust Him, I can talk to Him and lean on Him? You know how you come into a relationship like that? By trusting Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. And we sing in just a moment, there may be some in this building today that are not saved. I want you to get up out of your seat, walk down here. There'll be someone to meet you. We'll take the Bible and show you how you can know Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. You can leave this building today saying, I know that heaven is my home, that my sins are gone. You can do that today, and I want you to do that. There may be those today in the building, God is leading you to become a part of this fellowship and this is where God wants you to serve, and this is where God wants you and your family to be. You come, take a seat on the front row. We'll get the information that we need for you, from you, uh, to be a member here. You come if God is leading you here. But there may be some of you here today that what you just need to do is say, come and say, Dear God, I don't know why, but I'm going to trust you. For Lord, I may not know the reason. You may show me the reason down the road. I may know the reason one of these days. It may be in heaven before I'll know the reason. But dear God, I know this. Your word tells me there is a reason. I may not know it, but there is a reason. Therefore, I'm going to trust you. No matter what you do in my life, as Job said, though you slay me, I will trust you. Won't you come this morning and say, dear God, I won't thank you. It's one way to look at your problems and look at your trials and despair over them. Another thing is to come and say, dear God, I want to thank you, not so much for the pain and the hardship that I'm going through, but I want to thank you, Lord, that even in this, there's a reason. And even in this, something is going to come out for my good and something's going to come out for your glory. Trust him with it. Will you do that? Trust him with your problems. Trust him with your needs. Trust him with your burdens. As we stand, I want you to come all across the building. God spoke to your heart. Dale's going to sing this song. Our deacons are going to be coming to pray. Terry, Aaron, and others are going to be down here with their Bibles to help you and to pray with you when you come. My wife and others are going to be here. I want you to get up out of your seat and come. I want you to remember now, I want you to remember what Mr. Chambers said to his mom on a little piece of paper. God is too kind to do anything cruel. And he's too wise to make a mistake. And he's too deep to explain himself. He doesn't have to explain himself. Just as long as I know there's a reason, that's enough. I can trust him with that. And as Dale sings, I want you to come bring your knees. Trust the Lord. Do like Job. I'll trust the Lord today. Bring your questions and your whys. Trust the Lord. There is a reason. I assure you there is a reason.
No matter what, no matter why, there is a reason. As we sing, just trust the Lord with your questions and trust the Lord with your storms and trust the Lord with your burdens and trust the Lord with what you're going through. That God makes no mistake. It's too wise and too good to do anything cruel to you and too wise to make a mistake in your life. So trust in the Lord. Sing it, come. Oh, yes. He makes no mistake. Isn't that wonderful? Isn't that great? Yes, he does. My way may be hid, but he knows. It's not concealed to God. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Tell it to the Lord. Take it to the Lord. When you ask why, you can trust the Lord if there is no obvious answer. As we sing, come, as Dale sings. Do like these, come, trust the Lord. I will trust in the Lord. Oh, yes. I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know I can trust Him. You can trust Him. For no matter what happens, there is a reason. Oh, yes. Yes. You know the chorus of the song, sing it with Dale. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. Sing it. He makes no mistake. Thank God. Sing it. Oh, yes, he does. Oh, when I'm tried. And I shall come forth as gold. I shall come forth as gold. Sing that next stanza, Dale. And now Listen. I can see others come. Testing comes from above. Yes, it does. God strengthens his children. Oh, yes. And others. Urges in love. Amen. My Father knows best, and I trust in his care. Yes. Amen. For fruit I will bear. Oh, yes. Let's sing it with him. Sing the chorus. Oh, rejoice. Oh, rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistake. Aren't you glad for that? He knoweth the end of each path. Amen. When I'm glorified, when I am tried, and 
Let's bow our heads. We're going to be going in just a moment. Our Father, this morning, in the name of Jesus Christ, we want to thank you for a couple of things. One, we want to thank you for the examples you've given us in the Bible. Human beings like ourselves. Father, we see Job and we see the struggles of Job, though the measure of our trials may not be anything to his. But yet, it encourages us and comforts us to know that he reacted to things much like we react to things. This is so part of us, Lord, that's human. Uh, we have trouble with things that happen in our life. And it comforts us to know that some of the greatest Christians that ever lived often reacted the same way we do. But Father, we come and we thank you that Job and others in the Bible remind us that even though we may not know the reason why things happen in our life, we do know there is a reason. And we do know that good and bad, that when they're all compiled together in your plan and watch care of our life, they work for our good and ultimately for your glory. So, Father, we come today, and I pray today that many that will leave as they walk out that do not know why, yet they'll walk out strengthened in knowing that their God, a God that is too kind to be cruel and too wise to make a mistake, is in charge of their life, and that there is a reason for what is happening and what has happened, and yea, what even will happen. Father, we thank you for that. It's an anchor that we can drop. It is a promise that we can live by. It is a truth that will strengthen our heart in many of a dark and stormy night. So thank you, Lord, for being our God. Thank you for what you do in our lives. Thank you, God, that you love us enough not to leave us the way we are, that you love us enough that you want to do more in our life than just save us, and we thank you for it. And we thank you for how you do it. Always not enjoyable, but yet we must rejoice for what you do. Thank you now for bringing us together, for your goodness to us in this service. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.